0: Hi, welcome to theanalysis.news. I'm Paul J. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. Is Trumpism fascism? There's been quite a bit of debate about this over the last four years. Coming to a head after the events of January 6th was the riot on Capitol Hill the last act of an attempt by Trump's forces to organize a military coup. Watch or read my piece titled Trump's Treason and McConnell's Mayhem, where I lay out the argument that there was such an attempted military coup, as delusional and unsuccessful as it was. But are the forces behind this coup attempt and the Stop the Steal campaign fascist, is that the right use of the word? What about the millions of people that continue to believe the elections were stolen? Franklin Roosevelt said the fascism is when one section of corporate capital seizes control of the state. If so, is the cancerous growth of the power of finance over the economy and government, a process known as financialization, the systemic base upon which there is a malignant tumor whose face for now is Trump's? Of course, both major parties are primarily the parties of finance, but does that make them more or less an equal threat to the people? There's some on the left who don't take the Trump malignancy as a serious threat. Some say that because the economic policies of the corporate Democrats helped till the soil for the rise of Trump, and certainly they did, there's really no difference between the two. Or some argue the Democrats' foreign policy is even more dangerous than Trump's, and those working within the Democratic Party are, by definition, selling out. Or the Democrats are more deceptive and, thus, more dangerous. They are all essentially saying it's wrong to use the word fascism when talking about Trumpism. My guest has been going through the various arguments and in several articles tried to provide some answers. Paul Street is an independent progressive Policy researcher, an award winning journalist, historian, author, and speaker based in Iowa City, Iowa, and Chicago. He's the author of nine books to date. His most recent books are They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy, and Hollow Resistance, Trump, Obama, and the Politics of Appeasement. Paul writes regularly for Counterpunch. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Thanks for having me on, Paul. So let's start with January sixth and what happened. Uh, Some people are calling this uh, uh, an insurrection. Some people are using the word. uh, It should be described more as as an attempted fascist coup. Uh, What's what's your thinking?
1: Uh, Insurrections, I think, misleading. It implies a kind of grassroots, rank and file, populist uprising by the people. When in reality, this was instigated from the top down. Um, This is consistent with what even Trump insiders like Michael Cohen and others from within the administration and within the Trump circle have been warning us about for quite some time, which was that Trump would not leave uh, um, peacefully. He would not accept uh, um, a, a peaceful transition of power if he lost the election. He said it himself. He said it himself. In fact, Trump, even in 2016, wouldn't guarantee that he would honor the outcome of an election that they that, uh, that didn't go his way. He said the only way he could lose if it was rigged. Well, if it was rigged, that means it's illegitimate. If it was illegitimate, therefore it's uh, um, justified to respond to it with, with violence. The political use of violence is a core part of the fascist playbook, uh, the rejection of legitimate, um, elections i hesitate to call american elections democratic yeah, I was about have, to say yeah <laughs> we don't have a democratic electoral system in this country the united states still does not de- elect its presidents on the basis of one person one vote but nonetheless this was one of the freest and fairest presidential elections in recent memory and uh, trump made it very clear that that uh, he wasn't going to honor it if it didn't go his way um
0: but but, but yeah because because Tr- trump trump just not willing trump just not willing to go doesn't in itself make this a fascist.
1: Oh, there's so much more. Right. I mean, you know, and and I mean, there's another subtext in all of this, too, uh, which which I think hasn't received enough attention, which is there is the, the, this is Trump is a white nationalist and Trump's supporters and backers are dedicated white nationalists. And there is this this kind of uh, sense that um, he couldn't that he shouldn't that, that, that he's lost because of minority votes and non-white votes. He won the real vote that counts. He did, he won, he won, the, he won the majority white vote. Um, you know, the, 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 that's also part of it. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, rejecting the outcome of an election in and of itself is, does not define Trump as a fascist. Trump, Trump's fascism uh, is, is, is a matter of him checking off a number, of boxes, And, you know, Paul Krugman, uh, the New York Times liberal columnist had this interesting uh, comment the day after the January 6th uh, coup attempt. That's what it was. It was an attempted, it was a, a blundering and failed and delusional coup attempt, but a coup attempt nonetheless, and a coup attempt that went back in planning historically, at least to the late summer of 2020. But Krugman had this line that said, uh, the use of political violence to achieve racial nationalist goals. Uh, yes, Trump is a fascist, as many of his backers are. And, it, and if you had any doubts about that, January 6th should, should prove them wrong. Uh, no one should have ever had any doubts at all. We had, from the very beginning, really from the walk down the escalator in Trump Tower, declaring the candidacy through the presidency, we had vengeful white nationalism. We had advocacy of the use of political violence. We had the demonization and the scapegoating of of racialized others. We had insane paranoid hatred and fear of socialism, falsely conflated with uh, uh, hatred of liberals and the classic fascist narrative that the liberals are too weak and they will let the communists and the socialists uh, take over. We had consistent lawlessness in the name of law and order through the Trump administration. It's one of the great calling cards of uh, fascism. We had consistent recurrent purges of Trump administration officials who were perceived as uh, uh, insufficiently loyal, as as disloyal. It's a classic authoritarian character. So we don't have time to go through all of the 31 boxes that I kicked off in the Trump administration, but I would... uh, Ask your listeners if they have time to go Google me up a counterpunch essay I did called 31 Flavors of Fascism, and it's just amazing. It's just he clicked off all 31 of them uh, of various, you know, underlying parts of the fascist political playbook, not to be consolidated with having achieved a complete, no one said this, no one on the left who's accused Trump of, of being a fascist and being atop a fascist movement. No one has said that, that under Trump there was achieved a fully consolidated fascist, political, economic, corporatist regime on the model of Hitler and Mussolini. We never said that, and and I don't say that. Uh, I don't doubt that Trump would would have would have dreamed of something like that. I think we came incredibly close to a second Trump term. I think people have no idea what kind of stuff was going to hit the fan. In a second Trump term, moreover, I think, but for COVID-19, we would have had a second Trump term. Uh, a lot of the left resistance to calling it fascism is based on an almost obsessive, compulsive, uh, living in the past kind of a, a, a fixation on Hitler and Mussolini, on, on 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 Europe in the interwar period between the, from the 1920s through the 9. And it's just, I've been documenting this. It's just fascinating. The journalists who are asking the question, is Trump fascism? Is there fascism in Trumpism? Habitually then go to the academic experts. And who are their academic experts? Historians. Typically, often retired historians of 20th century Europe who are completely out of their depth when it comes to assessing uh, um, political currents in the contemporary American, environment. but there is there is a pa- like there a self-fulfilling is... prophecy for the journalists for the, who who think it isn't fascism and therefore then they go get historians of Hitler and Mussolini who go that's
0: right it's not Hitler and Mussolini it's like oh okay, so, but there's an there, there's an important parallel with Hitler and Mussolini, which is they were very popular, you know the, the you know certainly it seems at least a majority of Germans. Uh, supported Hitler, and and at, and at some point, it might have been a fairly significant majority of Germans supported Hitler. He, and and the fact that 74 million people voted for Trump for someone who I agree with you, I think uh, espouses with a, a little bit of dog whistling cover, but not much, uh, pretty overt racist and fascist uh, ideals. Uh, but a lot of people voted for him, and there's a there's a concept some people have written about called—it's uh, not just fascization of the politics and fascization of the economy, it's fascization of a people. And and to some extent, there's a large number of that 74 million, certainly not all of them. And I buy that a lot of that 74 million were driven by either, you know, kind of a religious belief, which I don't think you could call fascist, although some of it may be, economic, uh, um, alienation and disenfranchisement and so on. But there seems to be a fairly significant section of people that you could say are are fascized. And, and that's something else the left doesn't seem to want to talk about too much.
1: Um I think you're absolutely right about that. Um you know and I might add with direct parallels, some of the same socioeconomic base in a lot of the ways. There's a, a surprising I don't know, desire is the word of um uh, Theme among a lot of left analysts, I, I've, I've, and commentators that I've spoken to over the last few years, is this desire to see the Trump base as proletarian, as working class, and it and and the socioeconomic data, the profiles and the, 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 the survey data, completely contradictives. It's 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 in many ways the same basis as classic German fascism. They're middling, economically insecure sometimes, but not particularly poor not especially proletarian petty bourgeois uh, there's this a lot of folks um, conflate not having a college degree with being in the working class and it's a false conflation.
0: Yeah, I don't know who came up with that one because uh, this lots of workers have college degrees
1: <laughs> right right that's true too. that
0: <laughs> works in factories with a PhD okay. I mean, there's all kinds of all kinds of workers with college degrees these days. and, and they and and when they do this class supposed class analysis of who voted for Trump, anybody with a college degree is not in the working class, which is a, comp- a real false premise. So. There's also a
1: false conflation of region with class. So you know, there's all the state that shows that Trump voters come from some of the poorest, low GDP counties of America, which is largely true but they also tend to be uh, relatively affluent, well-off people within low-income counties and, and census tracts and all of that. And you know, economic grievance is not a really uh, the fundamental or particularly uh, main theme in the survey data on who the Trump base was in 2016 and 2020, but rather the, the, the defining characteristics, the thing that's driven the Trump base are a combination of authority, a toxic combination of authoritarianism, the desire for a strong leader with white nationalism. And they're merged in this way, the role of the strong leader that they desired, that they thought was Trump. Maybe it won't be, kind of wondering who the next one will be, unless it possibly could be Trump again in 2024. The strong leader's job is to uh, uh, roll back, The power of the evil, evil liberal conflated with left, intelligentsia, professional class, and sometimes corporate elite, which is falsely accused of having opened the door to let the supposedly inferior, lazy, criminal people of color, quote unquote, cut in line in front of the virtuous Americaner uh uh, Trumpenvolk, the white folks, the real citizens, the real Americans, the people who really make. Uh, America. Uh, Great. And, you know, you hear from some left analysts, including some big names, and I don't want to name names, that it's not fascism because it's not full state capitalist corporatism with a maximal leader atop a single-party state telling the business class what to do. As if the Nazis in the early 1930s were running around screaming, let's build a corporatist state capitalist economy. You know, let's build a militarized corporate. No, they ran around screaming about the international Jewish conspiracy and they linked it in their minds with the international communist conspiracy and they merged them together in their great evil, which was Judeo-Bolshevism, was very racialized. The ideology was not... You know, it weren't, weren't people sitting around reading Mussolini's theoretical discourses on the corporate state? No, they were screaming against Judeo Bolshevism and kicking the crap out of people and killing people and torturing people on the basis of white of a, of white nationalism. And that's one of the really strong parallels. And it's something that a lot of the Marxists I know are just missing. They're look they're they're insisting on a fully consolidated political economic regime in which the military was on board and the business class understood that the you know, maximal leader told them what to produce and where to produce and all of that. We're not talking about a fully consolidated regime. Trump did make some sloppy kinds of expert, uh, efforts to tell the business class what to do early on. You remember the carrier plant and all of that kind of stuff, but no, that didn't happen. That's probably in an American version of fascism. It's, this is the neoliberal era and this is the United States where the corporate sector rose and became powerful before a central state ever did, but probably even American neoliberal era version of a kind of fascism that would be distinctive, would be distinctively American, it would be distinctive to this era. People are looking for an exact replica of Italian, German, and even Japanese fascism or just, um, they're stuck in the past. You know, they need to do a a Buddhist meditation seminar on understanding fascism in the present
0: moment i mean i well a uh, spanish spanish and portuguese fascism was different than italian and german fascism i was just reading re- i was just reading recently the portuguese actually didn't go after the jews for, which was in, in fact they even gave refuge to some of the jews
1: but but i think What's totally missing in in these in these discussions too is the third world fascism that the united states sponsored for many years i mean how about duvalier uh, how about Trujillo in the Dominican Republic and Duvalier in Haiti and in Marcos and
0: in, or in, Saudi Arabia t- today? Yeah. Right.
1: Well, that's that's Petro. That's international petrofascism, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, and of course Pinochet and the dictatorship in Argentina. These are. I
0: think I think I think the roots of this has we have to go back to like there's this basic thing with capitalism in crisis. It either goes to, opens the door called police state massive coercion clamped down repressed the working class or door number 2 rooseveltian new deal some form of social democracy and in the 30s roosevelt and the and the preponderance of the elites in the final analysis and and because of the mass uh, rising organization and unions and such they opened new deal door but right after world war too. There's no longer any need for this New Deal compromise anymore. And you start to have the undoing of the New Deal, and, and you also start to have these forces of uh, now it's time to crack down on the American working class, and it's time to really take advantage of the fact that we're the big superpower abroad. And why should we share the plunder with the workers anymore? So, I mean, I think to a large extent, you know, you have the, the Cold War, McCarthyism, which is, a, a, if you want, authoritarianism and kind of a reign of terror against the left. But then the, the, the big uh, uh, change, I think, takes place is with the rise of Reagan. And I'm, I'm doing these interviews right now with the guy, Matt Trinauer, who directed the series The Reagans for Showtime. and. It, there's very little difference in the messaging and po- politics and even policy of reagan from trump it's, it's almost like you know trump to a large extent is a copy of reaganism uh, so uh, you know if you want to it, this this idea of fascism it it has to be seen as a process It's not like overnight uh, maybe overnight in some situations you get a fascist party takes power and asserts itself like right, the right reichstag fire yeah, yeah. But more, it's a process taking place over decades, which I think has been going on in the United States. And then every so often you get like a malignant tumor that pops up and, and, and that gives us Trump. But this process of fascization is part of the uh, concentration of power in fewer and fewer hands.
1: I think the word process is, is, is really critical here. And another word that's worth using is continuum. Uh, A lot of folks that are into fascism denial and the left are into this black and white, all or nothing kind of thing. There's this one particular moment and the maximal dictator and his thugs take over and then it's fascist. That's not how how it's going to work in the United States. And it's interesting you mentioned the Reagan era because that's at some point in the mid, late 80s, Bertram Gross wrote a really interesting long volume called Friendly Fascism, which was a depiction of exactly what you're talking about. And of course, that's really the escalation on, um, of the war on the American labor movement, is uh, um, one of the most underestimated factors. Uh, in the, that's that, that that it's just almost forgotten and rarely gets mentioned in terms of the rightward drift of American politics is the decimation of the unions. You know, I mean, I, I think we were still a union density of like twenty-five uh, percent or thereabouts before Reagan comes in. Uh, we're down to less than ten percent. You know, and um, there's just there's just nothing anymore of that kind of countervailing power for the working class. Now, one thing that you hear a lot in fascism deniers on the left, and I've got this a lot, is that, you know, you don't get fascist streets, you don't get any fascism until there's a radical revolutionary left, a great radical working class movement that needs to be crushed, like the Mussolini black shirts did and like the the Hitler brown shirts crushing the German communists and socialists in the early 19. 30s. There's there's two things wrong with that. The first thing that's wrong with that narrative, that you can't have fascism unless there is this great big radical revolutionary left, is it unjustly downplays the racial and ethnic and ethno-cultural aspects of fascism. Okay, the racism. Uh, um, The Nazis are, the the anti-Semitism is absolutely critical to the rise of the greatest, worst, classic fascist state of all time, uh, the nativism and the and the anti-urban, the anti-black racism is critical to the Trump phenomenon. But the second thing's wrong with that is actually much of the Trump base has been led to believe that there is in fact a great big left, revolutionary socialist threat in this country. This is a message, it's a paranoid style, neo-John Bircher, neo-McCarthyite message. It has been getting beaten into their heads on right-wing talk radio, on Breitbart, on Fox News, and from the rhetoric of far-right white-nash politicians forever. And on an escalating pace, really, since the um, 1990s, Barack Obama was called a Marxist-Leninist again and again by Glenn Beck, by Rush Limbaugh, by all these lunatics. I mean, the the Trump rhetoric this last year... people just became numb to it. It received very little attention. It's a really key part of the fascist playbook to call everybody socialist all the time. You know, it's like, here I am, I'm a, you know, I'm a Marxist historian and commentator. I'm like, gee, I wish, I, I, I wish all these politicians that are being accused of being socialism. Joe Biden is going to, is the Trojan horse of socialism. This Biden, you know, the Trumpies said this. I think Trump said this. Repeat it. So people think that. Furthermore, giving some credibility to this kind of paranoid mindset, there was a there's a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He's a senator in Vermont, who called himself I don't I think inaccurately actually I think he's a kind of a social democrat at most, but called himself a socialist. Came damn close to winning a major party presidential nomination in two election cycles. You know, uh, you you do have a lot of young people who are are sick and fed up with neoliberal capitalism and supported Bernie Sanders and say nice things about socialism. And you had a remarkable, historically unprecedented in terms of numbers, uprising called the George Floyd rebellion this summer, which got pretty militant for a while there. So you could see how they think that. You could see how much of the Trump base can be led to believe that narrative. And I think their belief um, is enough.
0: There's an argument on the left, which is maybe even uh, more popular than the one you were describing, which is that the Democrats are as much part of this fascization as the Republicans are. And if you focus so much on Trump as the fascist, you're diminishing uh, the role or responsibility of the corporate Democrats.
1: Well, it's funny. I've even had to get that lecture despite the fact that my latest book is called Hollow Resistance Trump, Obama, and the Politics of (laughs) Appeasement. The book is a continuation of my relentless left criticism of Barack Obama. And one of the core criticisms that I have of him and his other corporate Democrats is that they are appeasers of American neo fascism. It's kind of a false dichotomy. You either have to criticize uh, um, the Democrats. Or you have to criticize the Republicans. And if you're criticizing the Republicans, then you're giving the Democrats a free pass. I mean, for me, as a dedicated American anti-imperialist, public enemy, number one, is always the president of the United States. Uh, um, I did not hear these people deflecting when Obama was in, deflecting all the time to George W. Bush. You know, and well,
0: What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I have heard so many leftists during the Trump years just um, instantly respond to criticism of Trump with whataboutism to Obama. They just they deflect from the criticism of Trump to Obama. But, Obama. but Obama put kids in cages. But Obama, you know, Obama, this, Obama did terrible things. I've written about them, you know. So it's like that. But and yet when Obama was in, they didn't deflect to, the, to, the, to, to George W. Bush's invasion of, of Iraq. To George W. Bush's torture. There's something going on where it's like you prove your chops that you're a leftist by directing all your criticism at the liberals and at the Democrats. I think it's a two-party system and that you, if you're a radical left analyst, you go after both of them. To say that they're the same, is just absurd. It's, it's just absurd. Uh, uh, Biden's in there now and there's actually some efforts to to have a mask mandate and to get vaccines out there and to take the pandemic seriously. For the previous four, uh, for the previous year, we had a guy in there who's a social Darwinist who probably likes the fact that the pandemic is w- disproportionately wiping out people of color, the infirm and the poor, you know uh, um, I mean, uh, imagine, AOC and Ilhan Omar and Bernie Sanders being affiliated with running through the Republican Party. You can't. Imagine Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever the heck her name is, the QAnon, lead, the congresswoman from Georgia, being in the Democratic Party. You, you can't. The regions are different. Uh, there, there's all kinds of differences. They're, they're not the same party. The Democrats, I think, for decades have been complicit in, in participatory and participatory in and underlying social institutional structural complex uh, uh, in America that could be called in many ways fascism equivalent military industrial complex prison industrial complex in the cities the uh, mass arrest and mass incarceration system the kind of blue system of fascism the, the hyper segregation and the, and the hyper class inequality in Chicago in Detroit in Los Angeles you name it that's right but they've but but that's, incidentally, this is stuff that Carl Boggs talks about in his book, Fascism, Old and New, wonderful political sociologist named Carl Boggs. Democrats are deeply complicit institutionally in the warfare state, in the mass incarceration state. But they haven't crossed over into the Jason Stanley realm of the politics, of the political playbook. They're not white nationalists. They, they would not try to overthrow Elections. They would not reject constitutional rule of law. They would not send their backers into the halls of Congress to physically, uh, perhaps, assassinate leaders of the other party if they lost an election. Right? They go. They do what Obama did and what Hillary did in in late 2016. They would dutifully, you know, or what Al Gore did in 2000. We literally had an election stolen from him. They would, you know, it's they value the continuity of those, those basic electoral and constitutional institutions. G- g- uh, GOP now has crossed over into a kind of radical space, a radical space where there's a sense of crisis and the institutions don't work, and there's a big section of the party that's ready to break. They're, 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 they're ready to break
0: these institutions. There's some forces on the left that underestimate the importance of formal democracy. Um, and that there is still some. Um, the fact that there is still a system of courts, there's, I, I'm not so sure if you're poor and black, whether there's still due process, uh, but there is some due process for people that are not, that are, that are black, but not poor. The real, I'm not, I, you know, I lived in Baltimore for a few years and I, there's not a hell of a lot of due process when you're poor and black, but if, you, if you're, you know, relatively working class and black there's and you can you know you can afford a lawyer there's still some due process the formal democracy is still worth something it's not real democracy the way we think of because there's no economic rights and there's unequal formal democracy the more lawyering you can buy the more democracy the more due process you can buy but it's still something it, it's you know it's not police state stuff um, and I think some people on the left they they, they don't you know, take into account that, that that formal democracy to a large extent exists, not only, but to a large extent, because people have fought for it. And when there's been attempts to erode it, people you know, push back on that. Um, and, and to minimize that within the Democratic Party right now and the, and the corporate Democrats, uh, there is still more support for that kind of due process and formal democracy than there is in the Republicans and listening to Trump, he would, I mean, really, if, if Trump had won a second term, I wouldn't have been surprised if he would have rounded up these leftists that he blames everything on. Uh, you know, Gerald Horn, the historian, cracked the joke maybe if, if Trump wins, we'll all be meeting in Yankee Stadium someday, you know, a la the way the Chilean Pinochet, yeah. Pinochet, yeah. Uh, so, uh, the, but let, let me ask you a, another question, though. But I think that's such a good point. Go I'll ahead. Have, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Of the leftists who dismissed the significance of all of this, uh, um, they, they really might not have enjoyed what a second Trump term would have been like. I mean, some of the things that Trump was saying about wanting to go after the university were just absolutely incredible, you know? And uh, what would it have been like to try and be a Marxist or some other kind of left history teacher or political scientist in 2022 or 20, it's not not very nice right now. But um, no, I mean, I think you're right now. I mean, those of us on the left and I'm very seriously on the left, uh, uh, think that this formal constitutional democracy, you know, in Canada, in England and certainly the United States is insufficient. And and then when you scratch down under the surface of it, it is uh, painfully and tragically uh, captive and subject to an unelected dictatorship of capital and empire and an interrelated dictator. We, we get that. Uh, and we want to go beyond that. The problem is when you have an authoritarian white nationalist or even fascist regime uh, in one or more branches of the United States government, you can just forget about carrying that critique and carrying that struggle and building those movements forward ever again. Then it's all over. It just, it just makes it worse. And then you're just digging out of a deeper hole. And I notice, you know, people people on the left, they hate the Democrats. I get that. I've been critical of the Democrats since I was in fourth grade. Uh, um, one of the sick things that having really right-wing governments in the White House and in power in Washington and in state governments does is it has this nasty knack of turning everything then into a get-out-the-vote program or to get the Democrats in. You know, it's better to have them in and then you see that life still sucks when they're in and then you build movements. That's kind of how the new left happened in the 1960s. It's kind of how Occupy happened. It's a little bit how Black Lives Matter got started under, um, and Fight for 15 got started under Obama. It's better to have the Democrats in, 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 in various ways. And, you know, I mean, um, you want to stop uh, climate change you want to stop nuclear proliferation, you want to stop all the existential menaces that we on the left are against, you're going to have less chance of being able to do anything on that when you have someone like Trump in the White House. We have some breathing space now. Joe Biden is a problem. I have all kinds of problems with Joe Biden, but I, I, I don't feel like uh, Joe Biden is about to inspire some white nationalists to come around a corner and shoot me in the head. I mean, we do have some breathing space here that perhaps we can work That's on. important.
0: It, it, and I think it's important in this issue of demonizing the Democratic Party, and I would add demonizing even the Republican Party in, the, in, in a sense, that the problem is the whole system of ownership in the country. When you have a handful of people owning the majority of the wealth of the, co- of the country, and because of that, have the uh, dominant uh, control of the politics. It's that system that's the problem. These parties are the front of the people that own stuff. And, it's not, and there is even a difference between the different sections of people that own stuff. You know, the Robert Mercers and Sheldon Adelmans that helped elect Trump are different than some of the billionaires that support the Democratic Party. You know, none of this stuff is monolithic, and we need to understand the fracturing and take advantage of the fracturing. And we can't get so focused on the parties and forget what's what's at the level of of the system, how the system works. That said, uh, for example, uh, there's a structural issue about the Democratic Party. It depends on its votes in the big cities, and the big cities are more progressive. The Republican Party has now built an alliance primarily in uh, in the in rural America honestly, less educated America, and sections of wealthier America, where people just don't want to pay taxes. It's kind of this—you uh, know, you have in the Democratic Party, you have alliance between sections of Wall Street and sections of urban working class, some of which is unionized. And the Republican Party, you have an alliance between uh, sections of finance, sections of uh, corporate America, especially in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, yeah, and military- industrial complex, and sections of the working class that are more rural that are less educated and more religious. Uh, so, so we got to understand this thing as a system that works. But as this system river of the system moves forward, all of which is a process we would both call is in the process of fa- fascization because the I think because it has to do with how finance is becoming more parasitical and degenerating you get these little eruptions, like a boil a tumor, a little volcano of real overt fascism. And if you don't take a stand and squash those things, even to some extent in alliance with these liberals, we will wind up with overt fascism. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I would add to that that something that very rarely gets talked about, too. We do have, obviously, what you're talking about is capitalism and uh, neoliberalism and corporate and financial <clears throat> parasitism in that structure. One thing is sort of, um, it almost gets kicked to the curb because I think people throw their hands up and they don't know what to do about it. It's just kind of like this, um, um, it's not even worth talking about. We also have this remarkable overrepresentation, structurally and institutionally in our political system of those most reactionary, wider, more rural parts of the country in the American political system. And I think this must be more so than any other advanced uh, quote unquote democratic capitalist country in the world. I mean, I don't know about that. I don't know enough about how Canadian or British or German politics exactly are structured, but in the United States, um, there are two senators for every state in in, in this very powerful upper body of Congress, totally regardless of population size. California has 40 million people, two senators, liberal, multicultural, California. Wyoming, very white, very right wing, uh, has what, 575,000 people and have two senators. You know, the Senate right now is 50-50 between these two parties. And the, and the, and the Democratic senators represent 42 million more Americans um, than, than the Republicans do. The electoral college is badly tilted to the right. Uh, uh, The congressional districts and most of the state representative, most of the state uh, legislative districts are badly gerrymandered to the right. We have these bizarre institutions that go back literally to the horse and buggy era, to the 18th century, um, to this uh, unjustly venerated charter called the U.S. Constitution, drafted for and by slave owners and merchant capitalists for whom literally, democracy was the ultimate nightmare and much to be avoided. And they devised a system, brilliantly devised, to keep it at bay. And no one talks about this. And I don't know how we get out of this mess until we start taking a serious look at the structuring of our politics. It's The, it, the absurdities are just endless. Uh, uh, the filibuster, lifetime appointment, and full judicial review power for the federal judiciary. It just goes on and on. So the, the country didn't really go fascist. Trump, Trump's, Trump got 25% of the adults to vote for him in 2016. And shockingly enough, 29% of the adults in the country to vote for him. This time came dangerously close to winning this time. And and yet, um, our, our policy is far to the right of our public opinion. So, as, so it makes it, that's part of why one of the parties, the major parties going significantly fascistic is so... So more menacing than it really ought to be, if we were a democracy, and we're not. We're formally not a democracy. We're a republic, and and a relatively oligarchic one at that.
0: You you use this term. We're getting near the end, so I want to get to this. Uh, use this term, Trumpian left. What do you what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, the Trump left are the people that uh, get their undies all tied up in the bunch at the mere mention of of uh, the phrase fascism. They're the people who uh, automatically have deflected from Trump to Obama during the Trump years. I've heard this again and again, They're the people who say that there's no differences at all between the parties are the people who give you the lectures that you don't need about how the democratic party is corporate and imperialist. When you make the argument that you just made, that it matters to have the least the, the non-fascist party, um, in power. I just, it's, it's just hilarious. I, my, my experience during the Trump years with a lot of people who were drawn to my writing has been sort of darkly disturbing and yet uh, darkly amusing at the same time because I have this reputation and this publication record of going after the Democrats. And so I gathered all these people to me and then they were so astonished and angry at me once uh, as Trump was coming in and during the Trump presidency that I was calling it fascist and they want to hear that they say things like no it's a populist uprising of the working class it's a there's a it, there, and there's all this language on what um I call the Trump and left about the need to listen to and even in some cases align with the Trump base it's what I call the red brown mythology this is associated with the writings of um CJ, uh, uh, what's her name? Somebody, Johnstone, K- Caitlin Johnstone, who became this big thing on the left. This guy Ajuma Baraka, who ran as the Green Party vice presidential candidate in 2016, is talking about this a lot. If you look at his online writings, it's all about we got to reach out to these people and 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 um, and and those of us on the left and in organizations like Refuse Fascism. In the United States have been very resistant to this narrative. They say, why, why,
0: why, what's, what's wrong with reaching out? Uh... Uh, th-
1: th- first of all, the, the notion that it's required. It, 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 it's not particularly required. This is not that huge a percentage of the population. To, to reach out means compromising some of the basic left principles. Uh, often on this false notion, that these Trumpies are neo-fascist Trump supporters are proletarian when they're really not. They're petty bourgeois and and they're 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 deeply racist. They're often deeply, deeply sexist. They're often uh, uh, deeply evangelical. Do not believe in science. It's it's to to they're not the type of people that you're going to find a lot of common ground and you actually don't existentially have to. What you really have to do is remobilize. Uh, the the lower and working class and minority populations who've been demobilized by the Obama Clinton tendency in the Democratic Party that's that's the problem. I mean that's how that's how Trump got in in the first place in 2016. Trump didn't win the working class vote. The Democrats lost the working class in minority vote. They demobilized it. They they didn't steal our base. They didn't steal the left's base. The the the. The Democratic Party demobilized its own base and, and opened the barn to these people. Then they had a champion, a fascist champion that they're now building upon going forward. Uh,
0: um, Hold on, hang on here. When, when you're talking about not reaching out, I, I, I'm not sure what you mean, because that 74 million people that voted for Trump, first of all, a significant section of them previously had voted for Obama. And, and and it's a real mix of people. I know there's a lot of people that just don't want to pay taxes. Uh, there's a lot of poor people in rural America who just feel so alienated. They don't know where else to go, and some of them go into religion. Uh, but even in the evangelical world, uh, at least 20 to 25 percent of evangelicals uh, did not vote for Trump. They voted for Biden and previously voted for Obama. Um, and. Uh, I think it's a big mistake to write off whole sections of America. Yeah, there's a there is a real core there uh, that's really racist and fascist, and, and and you know they weren't born that way, but the way they've been brought up in whatever culture they were brought up, they, they may be beyond talking to. But I, I don't. That certainly doesn't represent. I don't think even anywhere near the the majority of the people that voted for Trump. There has to be a political
1: coalition in this country and a movement uh, beneath and beyond just the election cycle, but working insofar as at all possible through elections to get through the kinds of policies and even more that Bernie Sanders was talking about. We need to rebuild a labor movement in this country. No one ever talks about card check, uh, uh, the Employee Free Choice Act anymore. We need to re-legalize union organizing in this country. We need massive green jobs programs both to give people Decent, livable wage jobs, and by the way, to save life on the planet. Insofar as that is still a a realistic objective, so so, you know, one of the great twofers uh, in 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 the world of policy is, uh, if not a threefer, is 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 the Green New Deal. We we need to build up and advance green job programs, that um, and and relegalize union organizing and. and, and double, I shit, I'd say triple the federal minimum wage. These are the tangible kinds of programs that I think will pull um, those r- real life material and social benefits for whatever portion of the Trump constituency that is accessible to us for building a humane and decent and democratic society. Um, sure. Sure. We should talk to anybody who's who's. I I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't want to go on a hate a hate trip about the Trump ace. That's right. There there's there's there, there there's most of them that are unreachable. I, I I've talked, I've I've spoken to them. many folks. Are they're just gone. They're they're in an alternative reality. Uh. uh but but maybe some are so. Uh,
0: and I think part of it is, and this is a fault of education and media. This chat I had with Henry Henry Girod the other day, we kind of got into this. But it's and it's not only the Trumpian base, but they're more affected by what I'm about to say. There's just no real, no sense of what the real history of this country is, uh, especially even the post-World War II history. The narrative of the Cold War creates such a foundational base from which Reaganism arose, from which Trumpism arose. I should, I should, shouldn't forget about George Bush and the Iraq War either. Uh, th- this. Th- People's sense of what the history of the country is 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 so false. I met a a guy uh, uh, who—he was a fireman uh, at 9-11, and he was was the chief of one of the fire departments that had to go to deal with the buildings, and his son was a fireman. And he was a lifelong Democrat, this guy. His son went up the buildings and didn't come down, and he was so furious. that he started Democrats for Bush later, and and he he said you, you you rally around your president at a time when the country's under attack and so on. And I talked to him, and I, I talked to him about. I made a film in Afghanistan. I, I you know I knew the situation there to some extent, and I talked to him. How uh, did he know the role of the CIA in inviting Bin Laden to Afghanistan, in the way Al Qaeda got created out of the essentially nurtured by the Pakistani intelligence and so on, the, the rise of the Taliban and the chaos of Afghanistan after deliberate U.S. policy of, of undermining the Afghan government and so on and so on. He knew nothing of it. His jaw was on the ground, and he, sa- he, he, he said, I don't know what to say. You've just, like, shaken everything I ever believed in. Most of the people, have they have no sense of, of, of any basic, historical facts. And I think it's one of the things you know we have to do as, as progressives. And this is not just, um, uh, you know, this is to everybody, but especially to people that are so influenced uh, by the Trumpist type of stuff or Reagan stuff. There's a great phrase in, uh, called, at times when the empires are dissolving, people lose their ideological moorings. And we're in that period. And uh, it, it's just so important now to try to give people some sense of where the, what the real history is because otherwise you can't have a rational conversation. I
1: think we drastically uh, underestimate, uh, I've, I've seen this over the years, uh, how much really good history could be taught uh, before kids get to college. And when you talk to historians, uh, um, you hear something that I don't know that you hear in any other academic profession, and that is we start with nothing. From high school, almost nothing. In fact, I you don't you don't hear that from English professors, you don't hear that from math professors, you don't hear that from science professors. Literally nothing. In fact, you often hear we have to not, we not only start with nothing, we have to undo high school history. American high school history, junior high school history is famously taught by the hockey coach or the football coach, and they're often sort of a right-wing person, but I taught for years at Northern Illinois University, which is 60 miles west of Chicago, and there was this strange experience. Every once in a while, you had a kid who was completely ready to take an honest and serious look at American history, and even to some extent already had, because they'd come out of St. Charles High School, and they'd had Joey Wegward, and Joey Wegward assigned the very readable people's history of the United States to juniors and seniors in high school. Now, he... Caught hell from some Republican parents and the teachers teacher. I knew Joe Whiteford. Caught hell from some te- uh, parent-teachers associations, some right wingers. There was also um, a, a high school district in the south suburbs that was very good and had one of these people. You know, kids take calculus. Uh, they take physics. They take some pretty intellectually demanding classes in high school. They could sure as hell read uh, the People's History of the United States. There's, there's a lot of stuff they could handle. Uh, and um, w- we need to do a better with, with um, job teaching American history. And by and the I way, think- Ken Burns isn't doing a, isn't doing the job.
0: And the other thing I think we need to do is in, embolden the teachers. My kids, I have little kids, and they went to elementary school in Baltimore. They went to elementary school in uh, Brooklyn, and in both places, I talked to the teachers. And I said, I, I don't want my kids forced to stand up and do the Pledge of Allegiance. I said, I, I think it's awful. And, 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 I, and I started to explain why. And the teachers agreed with me. They said, I won't make them stand. I agree with you. There's no place for the pledge in the, in the classroom. And there's, you know, the, you know, teachers can really be important in this. That was in Baltimore or Brooklyn? Both. Yeah, that can happen in our urban school history, yeah. Well, that's one of the big reasons why we have the big urban-rural split. In urban schools, you're right, you can have these kinds of conversations. And kids growing up in rural schools where religion and patriotism are the same thing, no wonder they grow up believing what they believe. And I, should, I don't want to generalize. There are a lot of smart people living in rural America who get it just as much as urban populations do, but they're not, they don't seem to be in the majority.
1: Oh, you should—you uh, should see the experience of trying to teach uh, the history of the Civil War to a kid who went to high school in Alabama, a white kid who went to high school in Alabama. They—they just—they're just gobsmacked. It's really—it was about slavery. It's literally the—the the line is that it was a—you know, the, the Southern cause was a virtuous states' right rebellion against the totalitarian central—you know—government led by Marxist Leninist. Abe. <laughs>
0: Well, I just read a quote from Lincoln that could have been right out of Marx, where he says, uh, labor comes before capital. Well, uh, Wealth is created by labor, then capital comes. <laughs> That's right out of capital.
1: <laughs> well, Abe Lincoln was, uh, was an articulator of a, of a free labor ideology at the time that was quite critical of European and Southern class hierarchy and uh, placed a strong emphasis on labor. Free soil, free labor, free men. That was the that was the, um, the slogan of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, thanks. There's a good chat at just the beginning. We'll do this again soon. Thanks a lot, Paul. Okay, very good. And thank you for joining us on the theanalysis.news. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website.